Open your Bibles to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2 will begin in a moment in verse 6. Judges chapter 2 will begin in verse 6 in just a moment here. I am a fan of uh, uh, historical sites. I like to visit places of historical importance. And, of course, one of those, or one category of such places are battlefields. And so my family has been lugged to a lot of battlefields over the years, dragged to them, sometimes against their uh, preference, but nevertheless, we go visit those battlefields. So we have visited battlefields of the, the American Revolution, of the War of 1812, the American Civil War. A few years ago, I actually was in Europe and got a chance to visit a World War II battlefield. And so this, was, this is fascinating for me. But one of the things I learned early on is that you don't just walk out onto the battlefield. Yes, there are markers. Yes, there are monuments and plaques. And you can go over and you can read about the 5th Illinois infantry and what, who was there and who commanded them and what they did. You can go see this plaque about the heroism of this, that, or the other person. But the bottom line is when you're standing on the battlefield, trying to look at all the plaques, trying to look at all the different monuments, you can't get the big picture. At least I can't. Maybe some of you can. But I can't get the big picture in my head when I approach the battlefield in that manner. For while I'm reading this plaque about what the 5th Illinois Infantry did on this field, I don't know what was going on over there that impacted this. I can't read the two plaques simultaneously. When I go read that plaque, I don't remember how it correlated to this plaque. And it becomes a lot of information that doesn't seem to fit together. It doesn't seem to give me anything. I come away not really feeling like I learned anything. I think some of us read a book like Judges that way. We see a story about Samson or about Othniel or about Ehud or Deborah or one of the other judges, and we go, okay, that's interesting. And we have no ability to fit it into the bigger picture. We wonder why it was even kept. Now, our New Testament reading this morning did remind us. Paul reminds the Corinthian church, and he reminds us this morning, that the, the accounts of God's people of old were kept, in part, to be examples for us. To be illustrations of how life can be, and should be, and should not be lived. But we still, even with that knowledge, we come to a book like Judges, and we read it, and it feels a bit like that battlefield plaque. We don't know what to do with the information. Well, one of the things I learned to do is to not start out at the battlefield. Rather, what do you do first? You start at the visitor's center. In the visitor's center... There are aerial maps, so now you can see where this battlefield fits in with the bigger picture of all that was going on there. There are arrows of different colors and showing different troop movements. And then they have the video. The orienting video. The video you watch that, says, that gives you the big picture of what went on here. And now when you go down on the battlefield and read the plaque, you go, oh yes, now I get it. 
When I went to Gettysburg and I watched the, the video, the little, I don't know, it was 18, 22 minutes, something like that, little or, uh, orienting video, then I go stand at Little Round Top. And I stand there and I see the importance of, uh, and, and the significance and the gallantry of what Joshua Chamberlain and his men did that day at Little Round Top when they protected the Union's far flank. And it turned the war. Now the plaque makes sense. Now I see how it fits into the big picture. Judges chapter 2 is that welcome center. It's the visitor center of the book of Judges. It is the orienting video. It is the picture of what's going on from a step-back perspective. Many Bible scholars have argued that it was added to the book of Judges sometime later. There's a great deal of debate. Some would argue that it was added centuries and centuries later. That, that doesn't hold water. That's not valid. But it doesn't seem unreasonable that it may have been added. We don't know exactly who wrote Judges. Some tradition holds that Samuel wrote it. And if Samuel wrote Judges, it completely makes sense that he might have written Judges and gone back and uh, added this chapter to help give us some guidance. Perhaps he did write it after he assembled the other stories. But whatever the case, whether he wrote it uh, in, in the order we have it or he wrote it later and edited it up, it doesn't much matter. The point is that what we have here is an overview of what's going to come in the rest of the book of Judges. A picture, a, 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 an aerial view, so that we can understand the rest of the book. So this morning, as we be, prepare to read Judges chapter 2, I want us to note three uh, uh, key areas, three key aspects of this uh, uh, introductory overview section. In verses 6 through 13, Judges 2, verses 6 through 13, we're going to see the crisis of faith. The crisis of faith. In Judges 2, 14 through 18, the next section of verses, we're going to see the character of God. The crisis of faith and then the character of God. And finally, in, the, in, in uh, 2.19, we're actually going to go through chapter 3, verse 6. In 2.19 through 3.6, we're going to see the consumption of sin. So we're going to see the crisis of faith, the character of God, and the consumption of sin. And we're going to see how uh, the, the writer gives us those three points as guideposts, as markers, as the big picture of what we're going to see over and over and over again in the book of Judges. The details will be different. It'll play out a little differently in the different circumstances. But what we're going to be reminded of is that our faith, our not, not the faith, not the group of tenets in which we have believed, not the doctrines to which we hold, but our faith. Our ability to hold to it is always in crisis. We're going to see the character of God, who both hates sin and saves sinners. And then we're going to see the consumption of sin, that it is inherent in who we are, that apart from God's leadership, apart from God's guidance, apart from God's uh, uh, hemming us in and protecting us, we will be consumed by sin. We will fall back into it every chance we get. Before we dive into this, let's ask the Lord's guidance as we seek 
his word. Spirit, speak to us through this, your word. Let us hear its message. Let us be uh, uh, warned where there are warnings. Let us be challenged where there is challenge. But let us see our need for you to be our shepherd, for you to have your hand upon us. Through your word and through the leaders you ordain in your church, let us recognize that we will be consumed by sin if we do not follow you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Judges chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 6. I'm going to read straight through uh, 3.6. When Joshua, and I should make this comment, uh, you recall in uh, Genesis chapter 1, there's an account of creation, and then Genesis 2 comes back and gives a, 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 a more detailed retelling of a portion of the creation. We saw in Judges 1 last week that Joshua had died, and now we're seeing Joshua die again. It's not two people named Joshua. There was no resurrection and redeath, but rather this is a coming back and a retelling of that with some more detail filled in. <clears throat> when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the People served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress." Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them. Whether they will take, I'm sorry, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. 
Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generation of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the uh, uh, Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. The crisis of faith, the character of God, and the consumption of sin. Those are the three sections in what we have read that really are going to play out over and over and over again in the book of Judges. Let's look more closely, rather briefly, at each of them. The crisis of faith in verses 6 through 13. So what do we see there when we, we, we speak of the crisis of faith? What is it that put their faith at risk? What is it that made it hard for them to continue to walk in the ways of the Lord their God? Well, the first thing we're going to note is actually we need to go back and be reminded of what happened in chapter 1. If you look back at chapter 1, you'll be reminded, you see there in, in, in verses 27, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, a, a repeated refrain. And such and such a tribe did not completely drive out the Canaanites. And such and such a tribe did not completely kill the Canaanites. And it goes on and on and on. And in fact, we get to eventually verse 34, chapter 1, verse 34. Notice the reversal. So where, 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 where verse 30 starts with Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Acho, verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Now look at verse 34. The Amorites, oh, that's not a tribe of Israel. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan, that is a tribe, back into the hill country. So we actually see at the end of chapter 1, there's a reversal in what's going on. Who's winning the battles and who's pushing whom around? So one of the first things we have to recognize is that the crisis of faith that, uh, 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 that faced the generation of Judges chapter 2 arose in part because they did not draw a clear line of distinction between them and us. Between those people who are God's enemies and those of us who are his chosen people. They did not clearly delineate between those whom God had set free from Egypt to conquer the land, and those who were to be conquered, who were to be killed, who were to be overthrown. And you say, well, how can that be? How could they possibly have not made that distinction? Well, the answer is relatively simple. You see, it's not Madison Avenue who discovered this. It's been around for a long time. Sex sells. Sex sells. 
You ever wondered why the people of Israel struggle with the Baals? We hear about Baal. All throughout the Old Testament, they were, they were tempted to follow Baal. Well, Baal was the fertility god of the Canaanites. And one of the practices of Baal worship was ritualistic, temple-based prostitution. And that is hard to say no to. And because they did not kill off the Canaanites and let the Canaanites live among them, as we saw in chapter 1, they eventually got pulled down by the religion of the Canaanites. It is a warning for us that when we uh, 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 let sin linger, when we let temptation stick around, It is a crisis for our faith. Not a crisis for Christianity. It's not going to undo the doctrines. It's not going to undo the Word of God. But it is a crisis for our personal faith, our belief, and what we cling to and what we follow. We also see in verse 10 there an incredibly important statement. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And now listen to this. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. It's reminiscent of what we see in the opening of the book of Exodus. And there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And that means trouble's coming. Well, we have it here. And there arose a generation who did not know the Lord. And that means trouble is coming. You see, what's going on here is that they failed to pass their faith along to the next generation. Their children were not converted. You know, there's an interesting difficulty in Christianity. The Christian church has been divided uh, for centuries now along the lines of this question of how do we think about and treat our children and without, without taking time to, to deal with all the nuance, and I, I recognize there's a great deal of nuance between this, but more or less on the two extremes, the views kind of go like this. There is the extreme view that says you treat your children as though they are part of the church until you have some reason to do otherwise. And then there are that view that says you treat your children as though they are uh, uh, unsaved and completely outside of the church until you have reason to do otherwise. And it's, it's that tension of what do we do with our children? And the reality here is that we need to uh, incorporate our children into the church. We need to bring them into the life of the church. We need to make them part of the body of Christ. It's the reason we baptize our infants. But we must never mistake that for conversion. We must never mistake that for them being a Christian. We must still teach them the faith. They must know the Lord. We must impress upon them the importance of things like worship. We must communicate to our children, it's not that we go to worship because that's what we're supposed to do, or that's just what you do on a Sunday morning. It's because we're meeting God. We're going to hear God speak to us. And that's not normal. That's not what happens every other day of the week. We're going to hear God speak to us through his word. And then we're going to praise him. Not because we particularly like the song 
or because we particularly like the tune, but because God's worthy of praise. And we're going to sing out. Think of all the subtle little ways that we mock preaching, or we scoff at certain songs, or we make fun of worship, and what that communicates subtly to our children. Not just our biological children, but our covenant children. When we baptize a child, we all take a vow to help raise that child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We are all responsible to do everything we can, to bring every measure of grace to bear, all our prayer, all our teaching, all our encouragement, to see that the next generation knows the Lord. Or the faith, as we know it, will vanish. There arose a generation that did not know the Lord We see then in verse 12, And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. They forgot the Lord. It's not just that their children didn't know the Lord, but they forgot the Lord. They forgot all that he had done for them. They forgot how bad off they once were until he set them free. They forgot how they had wandered in the wilderness until he brought them in the land. They forgot how they stood at the edge of the Jordan not knowing what to do until he parted the waters. They forgot how they stood at the base of the walls of Jericho and threw up their hands and said, we can't take the city until he brought the walls crumbling down. They forgot how they saw themselves as grasshoppers in the eyes of the inhabitants of the land, and yet God cleared them out before them. They forgot how once upon a time they were a a little congregation who thought they might never have a building, and God provided it. They forgot how they were one time a group of believers who had lost their pastor and wondered if they would ever get another, and God provided it for them. They forgot the number of times that they uh, prayed over the budget, wrestled over the bills that were due, and the money came in. We cannot forget our God. The crisis of faith came upon the people of the book of Judges because they did not clearly make a distinction between us and them. They blended with the unsaved pagan culture. And it dragged them down. The crisis of faith came upon the people of God because their children grew up not knowing the Lord. And the crisis of faith came upon the people in the book of Judges because they did not remember all that God had done for them. But the the introductory movie here in Judges 2, the visitor center of Judges chapter 2, doesn't leave us with just the crisis of faith. It also tells us something about the character of God that we're going to see over and over and over and over again in the book of Judges. Look at the contrast of verses 14 and 16. An amazing contrast between these two verses. Verse 14, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And then verse 16, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. God sent the plunderers, and God sent the salvation. God sent the punishment, and God sent the relief. God sent the chastisement, 
and God sent the forgiveness. The character of our God, the character of our God is that he hates sin. And he will always act against sin. You cannot get away with it. I worry sometimes. I read the book of Revelation and there's a one of my favorite passages, it's one I, I, I love to read when I'm having a tough time in life. It's one I like to read like a hospital visit with other people in Genesis, or Genesis Revelation, uh, other end of the Bible, um, Revelation 21, and we read there where uh, 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 the new city comes down from heaven and, and God lives among his people and is their God. But there's a little line in there that concerns me a little bit. For it says that he will wipe away every tear. And I've always been bothered by that. Because that means there will be tears. I think we're going to regret a lot that we've done. I think we're going to mourn our sin. I think we're going to get to heaven and having walked away from the judgment, having been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, but unbelievably ashamed of what was revealed about us. And it's going to be hard to take. We're not going to live with that for eternity. He will wipe away those tears. When we say there are no tears in heaven, well, there will eventually be no tears in heaven. But, if, but initially there are. The, the, God hates sin, and he is always going to bring it to account. But then we see that this same God that hates sin provides a way out from underneath it. He provides a savior. He provides salvation and the reality of the book of Judges is that it is a, a book of types. Over and over and over again, each judge is in his and her own way a type, a, a model, a picture of the Christ who was to come, who was to be the ultimate salvation, who was to set people free from sin. The character of God revealed in verses 14 through 18 is that he hates sin and yet saves sinners. And we're going to see that over and over and over again in the book of Judges. Isn't it amazing? If you're familiar with the book of Judges, you know it's a, it's a, an, a, a repeated accounts of the terrible sin of the people and of God's salvation. And you're tempted by the end of the book of Judges to go, finally, the book's come to an end because God's finally just quit. He's had enough. But then there's the book of Samuel, and the pattern continues. And then there's the book of Kings, and the pattern continues. And then there are the accounts of the prophets, and the exile, and the post-exile, and the pattern continues. And then there is the account of the book of Acts, and the pattern continues. And to this day, our God continues to provide salvation. We continue to sin against him. We continue to anger him. We continue to offend him. And he continues to save. Pretty amazing stuff. The book of Judges is going to deal with the crisis of faith, but the book of Judges is also going to repeatedly point to the character of God. Finally, in verses nine, uh, starting in 2.19 and going through 3.6, the end of the section we read, we see there the consumption of sin. The consumption of sin, it just consumes, it just grabs hold of and sucks us in when there's no one, no, no way to keep us away. I tell a lot of stories that involve my children, 
But those stories are a lot more fun when the child's actually present, and so I will tell one about our daughter. <laughs> so our daughter is little. She's really little at the time. Walking, but that's about it. And her uncle is babysitting for her and her older brother. And there's a, a decorative chess set that my brother, her uncle, had gotten. I, I don't remember where or how. And he's got it out on the coffee table. And when we're, he, he didn't have his own kids yet, so we're dropping off the two little ones. He's scared to death to be the babysitter. He doesn't know what he's doing. And he asked us, should I take these things up and baby-proof the house? We said, no. It's, they need to learn not to touch certain things. It's okay. We get back a few hours later. My brother is frazzled. <laughs> the daughter is crying. <laughs> it's not a good situation. She kept touching the chess set. He kept taking her away. He kept, she kept touching the chess set. He kept scolding her. She kept touching the chess set. He kept snapping her hand. He, she kept touching the set, chess set. He didn't know what to do. She couldn't let it go. She was obsessed with that chess set. And so unless he was standing right there, she went for it every time. Didn't matter what she, miseries she had gone through, what punishment there had been, what time out had been granted, what scolding, it didn't matter. She couldn't not touch the chess set. And that's the picture of sin we have here in the book of Judges. Unless the judge of God, unless God's appointed person is standing right there keeping us from walking into sin, we can't help ourselves. It doesn't matter how many times the Philistines have raided us. It doesn't seem to matter how many times the Canaanites have uh, uh, plundered us. We're going to do it again. And that's the picture we see here. But whenever the judge died, verse 19, whenever the judge died, they returned, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. We cannot walk this life alone. We cannot do it because this is who we are. And sin consumes us. The desire for sin plagues us. And we will, the moment the restraint of the judge is lifted off from us, we will dive back in. One of the reasons that Christianity is a corporate religion. One of the reasons that it is something we do together is this right here. We all need judges in our lives. We all need those who will sit over us and guide us and say, don't go there. Don't touch that. Don't do that. We all need that. I would encourage each of us to, to think about how it is that we use or perhaps fail to use the judges the Lord has placed in our lives, the elders of our local church, those who, can, who, who teach and instruct through means of books and uh, online and those sorts of things. How are you using those things? When there's a big decision, are you seeking 
their counsel? Or are you doing what is right in your own eyes? When the people had judges over them, they stayed the course. When the judge was taken away, they fell quickly back in to the patterns of sin. We need to hear that warning. The visitor center of the book of Judges shows us that for the rest of the book, we're going to see this repeated pattern, that there is a crisis of faith. But we're also going to see the character of our God, that he punishes sin but saves sinners. And we're going to see the consumption of sin. That on our own, apart from his guidance, apart from his shepherds, apart from his word, we will fall into sin. Because it is who we are. As we go forward in the next few weeks and consider individual judges, we will hearken back frequently to this chapter as a guide to understanding where we are on the battlefield, as a guide to understanding what it is we're looking at in whatever chapter we happen to be in. Is this chapter about the crisis of faith? Is this chapter about the character of our God? Is this chapter about the consumption of sin? We will have this to guide us. Let's pray. Lord, let us be guided by your judges, those who handle the word of God rightly, those who, who will listen to each other, debate with one another, wrestle through these things, and then offer instruction and guidance for us. Let us not do what is right in our own eyes and fall into the trap of the people of ancient Israel, but rather let us listen to those whom you put around us. And let us see the character of you, our God. Let us see your anger burning against sin, your hatred for sin, the way it disgusts you. But then let us see the salvation that you bring, salvation that you provide ultimately through Jesus Christ. And Lord, let us see the crisis of faith, that we are always at risk when we do not uh, separate ourselves and distinguish ourselves from the culture, we are at risk of losing our faith. When we do not pass along the faith to the next generation, we are at risk of losing the faith. And when we forget all that you have done for us, we are at risk of losing the faith. Let this chapter of Judges, this visitor center, this orienting map be for us a guide not just to understanding this book, but to living life. And let us live that life that you've given us in light of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.